It is only a paper moon hanging over the cardboard sea. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me. It is only a canvas. Hello there. You are listening to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast for the Ides of January. I don't know if that's a thing. It is now. It's officially the Ives of January. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Campus Life. Oh, I knew you were going to pick that. I'm uh, I'm Jason McMaster, and my game of the week is not the new Devil May Cry, because I haven't played it yet. Hey, and I'm Ed Del Castillo, and my game of the week is not Atari's Greatest Hits. Mm. Oh, that's I feel Good bad for Atari. <laughs> Wait a minute, Ed Del Castillo, are you in a relation to that guy who worked on the Command and Conquer way back when? You know what? I am I am very intimate with that guy. <laughs> I am that guy. Uh it's hard to believe that uh it it that just feels like a completely different era, a completely different people. Like I think of back to what I was like like when I was a teenager. I don't know that kid anymore. Do you feel the same way about like the producer of Command and Conquer? I mean, and not Command and Conquer 2 or Command and Conquer Generals. This is like straight up original gangster style Command and Conquer, right? Right, exactly. The very first. Oh. Doesn't that feel doesn't that that so that must make you Ed, you've got to be then about 60, I think. No. Come on. <laughs> no, the games industry is, you know, the games industry is not that old. We're, we're still relatively young. And, and I hear that the 40 is the new 20, you know, so. Ah, I'm glad to hear that. By those I, standards, I'm 23. Very good. Uh, you know, and you are right, Ed. It, it is a young industry. But what's amazing to me, because I've, I've been with it as long as you have, and I know McMaster, I mean, we're, we're all, we've, we've been here all along. For such a young industry, it, it sure has changed a lot. Uh, like yeah. it's it's just come such a long way. Um, it, you know what? That's that's what happens when information is the is the gold that is being traded. Yeah, exactly. Um, hey, by the way, thank you for the intro music. Oh well, you know what? I thought you might appreciate that, and we'll get into why that's appropriate in a little bit. But uh, before we do that, uh, so so you have been for the last I think we charted it out fourteen years. You've you've been. Uh, running Liquid Entertainment is it 14 years? That's correct. Yeah, it, it's a uh, you know it's kind of we're in this little gray zone of of I've been doing it 14 years. The company officially was formed in on February 3rd, so it's just on the eve of its 14th year. Ah, you wow. almost have a birthday coming up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's been it's been awesome. I mean, and and I think and again we're going to get into it later, I guess. But but man, it feels so much like when 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 I started in the business now in certain ways. So I. I'm just as enthused now as I was then, and I'm I'm really always feeling very blessed that I get to be a kid for as long as I have been. Well, before we talk about what you guys are doing now, because uh, there's definitely this this really charming kid appeal to it, uh, I want to lay a little groundwork for Liquid Entertainment. Sure, uh, sure. I'm sorry. Let me run down your titles uh, and ask you about a few of them individually. You got it. So, uh, is the is would you say it's is it fair to say that Liquid is best known for Battle Realms? Is that uh, sort of your your uh, I don't want to say biggest, but is is that what people think of when they think of Liquid Entertainment? You know, I I think in terms of fan base, you're absolutely right. We have people all over the world who still remember it. We just had like a parade in the Philippines less than a year ago, and it was a video game parade. We weren't even a part of it. We got pictures back, and there's people dressing up in Battle Realms characters and making their own homemade Battle Realms floats. 
So we're, we got pretty big, and, and you know, I, I owe a lot of that to piracy, which is probably a whole other, um, <laughs> which is probably a whole other podcast. But uh, you know, it, it's it's odd to hear a developer say thank you, piracy. But uh, I but, can imagine it's a great way to make inroads in certain markets. Exactly right, and and you know, I'll tell you more than anything else, that product has given us back so much love in terms of we're constantly getting letters from people saying, I still play this game. Where can I buy this game? Because my, I've worn out my disc. It's it's the awesomest RTS ever. Um, Ten years and still nobody's beat it in my book. You know, I mean, just very, very cool, the, the fan base that we have for it. And when people do ask, you know, where can I get a copy of it, uh, recently, I think it's recently, uh, it's, it's available now, someplace prominent. Why don't you tell folks where can they get Battle Realms? Yeah, absolutely. You can, you can get the, as you said, the original OG Battle Realms, um, you know, and Winner of the Wolf as a combined pack over at uh, goodoldgames.com or GOG.com. Those guys are have been super awesome. They I, I cannot tell you how much I really love working with those guys, and um, they 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 have been amazing. And they you know, the game price fluctuates. I mean, it, it's been fourteen ninety nine, and then there's been sales and all sorts of stuff. I think it's cheaper than fourteen ninety nine right now. I should have checked the price before I got on this, but uh, but it it's it's uh, great. At, it's a great value at twice the price. So go out and get it today if you haven't bought it. It's a 10-year-old game, and it's still one of the coolest about, uh, RTSs out there, in my opinion. Now, here is another RTS that you guys did, and uh, it, it has a lot in common in terms of mechanics with Battle Realms, but you had a, a, a more prominent license. Um, I would say, uh, and I don't mean this to disrespect anything you've done, Ed, at Liquid, but I would say <laughs> my, my second favorite Lord of the Rings-themed RTS is uh, Liquid's Lord of the Rings RTS. And it's only my second favorite because Electronic Arts has so much, you know, they had the money to afford the uh, the license from the movies. So they got to do all this, like, direct movie tie-in, and you have Viggo Mortensen yelling in your ear when you're playing. But I still think you guys did a great job with the Lord of the Rings mythos using sort of the mechanics of Battle Realms. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, and is it called War of the Ring? By the way, it's called War of the Ring, and mm -hmm. um, and you know that was a hard one for us because you know we signed it with, hey, we're going to do a Lord of the Rings title, and then it was like, well, you know, you got to do a Lord of the Rings title strictly by the book. You can't really use the appendices. You can't use any images from the movie or anywhere close to it. You know, it, it became this incredible minefield. You know, to to keep those different licenses separate. So I think, you know, my, my barometer for games is whenever we launch one, I put it on my calendar a year from then, and I go back a year later and play it. And if I enjoy it still a year later, I think we did a good game. And, and so far, every game we've done has met that criteria. Well, here's one that I played far more than a year later. I'm, I've still got it on computers around here. Uh, and one that I feel was just terribly underrated Um because you guys did things in Dragon Shard that I feel no other RTS has done. Like Dragon Shard has, if I think of real-time strategy games yep. that are not clones, that have absolutely unique selling points that you can't duplicate with another game, Dragon Shard is right up there. You're, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, every one of these games that we did, we tried, we tried as much as possible to have a set of artistry around it. You know, Dragon Shard has 
two layers, two maps. One is a kind of a more Diablo-style game where you move a squad through a dungeon underneath, and the upper part is the RTS. We had this cool hyper-terrain, which was like snow and mud that could be deformed in real time by the units crossing over it. We had, uh, you know, grass that moved when you ran through it. We had a, a whole, like, what I would call the progenitor to modern social grid city building mechanics, which was, you know, we had this kind of grid city thing that you could do. I mean, there was some really freaking cool. I, I would say that although we're more famous for Battle Realms, I am equally proud of Dragon Shard because, again, you look at Dragon Shard and there's so many great mechanics um, there that you don't see in real-time strategies and never have, like you already pointed out. I mean, just alone, the, the technological feat of being able to, with one key stroke, switch between two full maps <laughs> without any load time, man, I lost hair over that. I can imagine. And I, it's something that you take so for granted, partly because one of the uh, unique selling points of Dragon Shard, one of the things that it does so well, is integrating two maps that, can play, that play completely differently, but are, are, are so connected. I mean, the, the connections between those maps are important. You can't really afford to ignore one play style or the other. Uh, it, it, it's just this, it, it's this great example of let's take two separate games and, and, and challenge the player to sort of play and manage both of them at once. Uh, and I can, I can sort of imagine how some folks might think of it as a handful, but that was part of the appeal is, uh, like in any real time strategy game, you've got to micromanage and you've got to juggle where you're paying attention when, uh, and Dragon Shard just offered unique challenges in that, in that department that I loved. Absolutely. Um, Super cool game. All right, so here's one that, uh, okay, Jason McMaster, I'm going to give you a quiz. Are you ready for this? Oh, boy. I'm ready. This quiz is called, Which of These Three Games Did Liquid Entertainment Not Develop? I'm going to give you three game names, Jason. You tell me which one Liquid did not make, okay? Uh, All right. Okay. Uh, Liquid Sketch, Rise of the Argonauts, or Desperate Housewives? Which one did Liquid not make? I'm going to have to go against what I would think and say Liquid Sketch. Why would you do that? Why would you pick the right answer when because I worked so it's hard? A I know you. There's no way that it's, that whatever is the right answer is the right answer. So you you would you would then it, okay your final answer McMaster you, remit, keep in mind McMaster you were basically saying that Liquid Entertainment we're here talking to Ed they've made serious RTSs you're going to sit here and tell me that they made a Desperate Housewives game McMaster you believe that everybody's got to pay the bills <laughs> so Ed tell us you guys did do a Desperate Housewives game and I, I remember being intrigued by this was it I, and I haven't seen it is it kind of like a Sims approach what what do you guys do when, when you get the Desperate Housewives license so so let me back up a minute and say yeah. we went after the Desperate Housewives license ah just, just to fully just to fully you know put us in the camp of of we weren't just paying the bills uh, although, you know, I've got to confess, Desperate Housewives did pay the bills quite a fair a bit. Good. Um, well, sure, yeah. But we saw, um, we saw an opportunity. Um, we didn't believe that those games had to be lame. Um, and I've always, you know, again, there's, there, I hope that everybody sees a thread in Liquid that we always try to add more value than, than what you would presume would be in there. And, uh, you know, it ended up being voted Adventure Game of the Year by, P, by PC Gamer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the first line was of every review was didn't want to like this, but and, um, <laughs> wow. um, you know, we put a lot into that game. And I think the, the 
what triggered it for me was I said, this could be Sims with a story. Because back then, I don't know if you remember, but Sims was more just a sandbox. They hadn't started skinning it with with themes and things like this. Uh And, um, And I was like, this could be really cool if we do... The Sims with a story, and we did, we, we blew it out. I mean, you could play that game, and it's a full kind of Sims thing, but on top of that, it's got great storyline that plays out episodically. Like, we, we, we literally wrote a season of Desperate Housewives, which we got approved by the Desperate Housewives writers. Uh-huh. So we wrote something as good as any season of Desperate Housewives, and we put it to interactivity. And there's so oh, much no. in there. There's a, there's a poker game. There's a cooking game. There's a gardening game. There's um, and and we pioneered a lot of stuff. We have we have full blown product placement in that thing. That's not banner ads. Like you turn on the TV and there's Tide commercials in between the, the shows. And there's you know we had I, I forget all the other different like uh, we had some uh, we had Slim Fast in the fridge. <laughs> we, you know we had a Christ we had Chrysler cars in the driveways. I mean. We blew it out, and, and it's something I really believe in, that the, the, way you, the way you do product placement is you do it like the movies, and we said that's the way we're going to do it. And so, you know, Disney Awesome got all this product placement for the game, and we put it all in, and, you know, we really, like, we even had our whole team go down. To, so I don't know how you, if you know about Desperate Housewives, but they have two different um, locations. They have the sound set, which has kind of the interiors that they film in, uh-huh. and then they have the street, and it's all in Universal's lot, but they have the street, which is, you know, kind of where they have all the houses for all the exterior shots. And the the interiors of the houses do not conform in any way to the exteriors of the houses. So we had to go down there, measure, we had to redesign rooms, we had to, you know, like it was a it was a it was a Herculean task to get the sound set the, the sound stage rooms to fit within the um, profiles or the silhouettes of the street rooms, you know, of the, of the ones that are out on the streets. So we took it very seriously, and I think we did a really good job on it. So, Ed, is, uh, is Desperate Housewives, you guys, um, I don't want to say most successful, is it the best-selling game that you guys have done? Huh, that's a, you know what, I, I, I don't know. Is the but it real- would be up there, like it would, it would rival as far as like how well it did for Liquid, it would rival something like, like Battle Realms, is that fair to say? I, yeah, that's fair to say actually, that, that's, yeah. that's fair to say. I'm not exactly sure what the numbers are, but I know that it did pretty well for us. Mm-hmm. So, uh, now, now you talk about writing a story, uh, a, a, a series, uh, like a season of Desperate Housewives basically. Yeah. Uh, another game you did where you can clearly see this kind of uh, narrative effort. Uh, I recently described it as kind of a God of War clone, and someone corrected me and reminded me of some of the features in a game that you guys did called Rise of the Argonauts, and he suggested that it would probably be more accurate to maybe refer to it as, as, as having more in common with Mass Effect. Uh, tell, tell us a bit about Rise of the Argonauts. Well, I want you to give me the name of that guy so I can personally thank him. Um, <laughs> um, so Rise, you know, Rise was a... a an effort to bring mythology back in a way that people hadn't seen before. I've always, I'm a huge fan of mythology. I, I, I feel it's, you know, it was people, it was, it was man's early way of kind of trying to figure out ethicality and morality and a bunch of things. And, I, and I'm always, I'm always fascinated about it by that era in our history, because it was, if you think about the technology of war back then, it was very brutal. I mean, swords didn't say sharp, Swords didn't even stay straight. You know, the role of axes and 
and Swords was just to be a um, a, a more focused club, really, at that point. So, so war was was a blood spilling, brutal mess. And um, and at the same time, you have you know the beginnings of philosophy and the the rise of higher order thinking. So, what a great yin yang time! What a great dichotomous time! And I really wanted to kind of talk about that, but I also wanted. I mean, I don't know if you know the the original uh, Argonaut story. But it's kind of an object lesson in not being a jerk, right? It's like Jason kind of is is a user all the way through and at the end dies under the weight of his own ship. Um, and, and so it was a very ignoble story, but nobody remembers that. Like no one has actually read the myth to say, wow, really? He cut up people and threw them in, in the ocean so that the other guy would have to pick up the pieces? You know, and so we said, look, let's make this story relevant we said, okay, what we're going to do is he's about to get married. He gives his vows. And before his wife can give her vows, his wife-to-be, she gets murdered. She gets assassinated. And so what is that? like? So we dealt with two topics. We dealt with the topic of what does it mean to give your word? And what is, what is a when does a wedding vow really happen? And what does that mean in a world where you can actually go to hell and back to get someone back to you. Mm-hmm. And and that isn't a, just a, fr- a turn of a phrase. So we kind of dealt with, with the concepts of fealty. We dealt with the concepts of, of how far can you push yourself. We And we created a whole story around Jason basically saying, I gave my vow to her. It doesn't matter whether she gave it back to me. I gave it to her. And in a world where I can do something about it, I'm going to do something about it. And it was just, I really wanted to, you know, we were in the middle of like a lot of people talking about the divorce rates. Um, I was getting married. It was, it was all of that kind of like, what does your word mean? All kind of hit ahead. And I just said, we need to write a story about loyalty. We need to write a story about ethicality and what your word means and, and honor and, and the bond of that. And, and I think we did, I got to be honest, I think we did a great job. Do I think the project was underfunded? Absolutely. I think we could have done an even better job if, if it had been given the right time and money. But I think our team really pulled off something that, that if you follow the narrative, it's really heartwarming and it's very touching. And from a gameplay perspective, too, you guys did, if I recall correctly, uh, you know, like Mass Effect has, uh, I forget what they call good and evil, Paragon and renegade or something like that but but you guys used greek mythology and basically if i'm not, if I'm not mistaken it was like assigning points to different gods and that was that's the right. character development if I... that's right the the entire killer the, most of the character development had to do with how you and how you conversed rather than how you fought so we we gave you a lot of we you know if you answered we had four gods basically and each god kind of had a a certain style of communicating and so Depending, so there was kind of no wrong answer, but if you were always the angry, forceful, aggressive guy, you got a lot of Ares points, and the Ares points kind of helped you with your mace and helped you with certain abilities associated with that, you know. And if you if you answered kind of with more diplomacy, it went down the path of Hermes, and you know Hermes was was more about the sword, more about speed, you know. So it it was a really cool system because you didn't feel like you had to button mash your way to victory. You were going to get points just for thinking about your answer and answering the way you would want to answer. Right. 
so I'll, I want to ask you later in the podcast about what what you think it takes to make a good brawler based on what I, I've chosen for my game of the week. But we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later down the line. So just okay. keep that in mind. Uh, okay. you know. uh, now, what? so is what you guys have just released, is this the first time you have self-published something? Um, it's technically the second, but the first one was kind of a, a dry run, and it was a productivity app. Oh, okay. Well, so not yeah. So this is the first game you've published. Then, yeah, this is the first game. That's right. All right. So uh, you have availed yourselves of the uh, the iOS uh, and tell us a little bit about uh, what you've made. Uh, and, and by the way, so are you guys working on something else that's announced? I know you've obviously got other things going on there. Uh, is Paper Galaxy the the limit of what you can tell us about today? Um, well, uh, technically, we, well, we we announced last year that we're also working on a Battle Realms card game. Oh, for iOS. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's in the works, and and it's safe to say because I've said it to as many fans as will write me. Um, Battle Realms will never die in our hearts, and and it is an IP that we have intense value and love for, and so we're constantly trying to figure out how to get. Battle Realms 2 done. Um, we have an expansion in mind called Lair of the Lotus, which is, you know, goes along with Winter of the Wolf, which was our previous expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we still, you know, for us, it's it, it, to be honest, it's just about money, right? It's like finding the money to be able to do it. But those are our labors of love, as okay, is well, Paper Galaxy. Well, in the near future, good. We look forward to hearing about a Battle Realms uh, card game. Uh, I love that sort of thing. But so uh, you've just released Paper Galaxy. Um, how do you describe Paper Galaxy? Wow. Um, I would say that Paper Galaxy is, if I had to genreify it, I would say it's closest to an endless runner. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it has um, a very adorable look to it. It, it. The whole thing is done. I mean, the, the, the backstory that we kind of created in our heads for it was, what if a kid, you know, what if it was raining outside and the kid was kind of bored and he created an entire little uh, game that he could play out of construction paper? And so it's a the story is that you uh, that Luna the, the the moon from our Earth gets lost and um, she ends up in this kind of stardust cloud and that cloud gives her kind of cold when she sneezes she reveals that there's this hidden crab nebula underneath the cloud who is now awakened and is very irate and now she's kind of got her sneeze her way home and Mm -hmm. there's along the way there's a lot of personality in the planets there's a lot of different planets that can help her out she jumps from planet to planet uh, and the only way she can really get kind of any impulse is is by by jumping from planet to planet in rapid sequence, gathering stars as she goes, and landing on special planets that give her special abilities. Like if she lands on a Saturn-like planet, she starts speeding up. If she lands on the smoky planet, she gets another sneeze. If she uh, lands on the gas giant and and jumps right at the point where she's at the top hat of the giant, he gives her a boost. So. All of these kind of characters are all trying to help her get back to her home, and when and when she does, there's a, a a cool you know reveal which I won't spoil for everybody, and it unlocks even more modes of play, and um, and we're really proud of it. You know, it started as a nights and weekends project. It started as a project that you know we were working deep and dark on some D and D stuff, and some guys said, you know, we want to build something that's a little more a little more casual and a little more interesting. And you know, it's funny because. When hardcore people build casual stuff, 
it still has some teeth and some meat underneath it, in my opinion. And I think that's that's kind of what we're seeing with Paper Galaxy. It's like the look is drawing and, and getting people to immediately think, oh, this is a casual game. But even the the gamer gamers that are that are actually giving it a chance are going, wow, I didn't realize this, but I'm coming back to this thing a lot more than I thought I would. I thought I was going to play this once and say, oh, yeah, just like every other Endless Runner. But it really is very different, and it really has a lot of nuance to how you manipulate the planets, how you jump from one to another. And, and there's a depth there that's really, really cool. And well, I don't here, think the, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, I just want to say you mentioned uh, that, that meat that hardcore gamers might find. Uh, and I'm curious if you would sort of agree with this. The two areas where I sort of see that and where I find myself responding to it and, and continuing to play it um, is uh, the sneeze mechanic – which uh, basically in these other kind of endless runners, or I, I think of Paper Galaxy as almost an endless jumper, but it's sure. not jumping, so that's it's an endless runner with a vertical orientation. And even yeah. then, it doesn't necessarily have a vertical orientation. I mean, there are times I've gone down, and you certainly go sideways a lot. But uh, but but that's where one of the the mechanics is that I, as a hardcore gamer, respond to, and that's in this this sneeze idea. And sneeze sounds like a really cutesy way to put it, but it's a great way to express what's going on here. Uh, when the planet, when the moon, Luna, hits another planet, she orbits around it. And you have to time when you tap and when she spins off of that orbit. Now, early on, when you're going slow, it's really simple to aim. But the trade-off is that the Crab Nebula is catching up with you more quickly. So to make time, you need to build up speed by either uh, using special planets or getting your combo going. But the trade-off is once you've built up speed, it's more challenging to time and therefore aim the sneezes. That's right. So there's this great skill curve that I find myself working up. And one of the things that I think about paper galaxy that i don't think you could necessarily say about a lot of casual games i imagine it must look awesome to see somebody who is really good at paper galaxy just ping-ponging around the gal the planets like that must look really sweet to see someone who's good at this game it, it does and that's one of the things you know one of the things we always say it, it should be as fun to watch as it is to play mm -hmm. and and so we think we hit that with with this one and, and there's some you know it, it even simple things like i'm sure you've encountered a sun oh yeah you know, and, and the sun mechanic for those who haven't played it is that anytime you hit a sun, it burns you and you and you bounce off of it. Well, that's really bad if you bounce off of it under the bottom side. Yeah. <laughs> but if you bounce off the top, it's a real help. So mm -hmm. it's that kind of it's that kind of contextualization of the play that I think is part of what makes it more interesting to hardcore players, because hardcore players immediately pick up on those nuances and go, wow, deeper. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, the other thing that I think hardcore players would respond to that actually sort of took me a little time to figure out that this was going on, you, of course, have an upgrade mechanic where as you play, you earn uh, coins. I think there's, there's stars here. You stars. earn stars. And you can uh, spend them on upgrades. And plenty right. of games have done this sort of thing. But mm -hmm. what you guys do is rather than just upgrading the moon, uh, that's part of what you can do. You can make her lose speed less quickly. Uh, you can make her uh, her power sneezes, shoot her farther. Um, but what you also do is you can upgrade the galaxy itself. That's right. Uh, and, and you can upgrade the, the frequency of good planets, the power of good planets, the functionality. You can reduce the occurrence of black holes. Um, so I really like this sense that I'm spending my coins not just as a, as a sort of a money sink to make my 
my unit, my character do things better, but to change the shape of the, the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that mechanic. Which, you know, varies your pl- your play on multiple axis, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're, you're seeing different things at different times. Yeah, yeah we're and really it, proud of it. <laughs> uh, and as I wrote to you, what I've been doing is there, there are money planets, uh, and one of the things you can upgrade is, you know, the amount of stars around the planet. I, they're called rich planets. Uh, right. So my thinking early on is I was, I was sort of uh, grinding, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Uh, I think the word grind has too often has a negative connotation. It doesn't need that. But I was playing a lot to earn stars to spend to make my rich planets richer to get more stars like it was this great sort of feedback cycle where i, I felt like i was booming in an rts almost right, right. <laughs> and and, th- and that's what we were we were shooting for is is giving you because you could also um increase the you know your your star magnet so that when you came near planets you could pull stars off of them more easily which would also increase the amount of stars you collect so there's a lot of different paths to go down mm-hmm uh, now, uh, how long has it been out? Has it been a couple of weeks? I think. Yeah, we launched. Well, we launched the iOS version on December twenty first. Oh, and, okay. And we launched the um, Android version like two days ago. Mm-hmm. And we're working on localizations. We're thinking about upgrades. What we want to do for for enhancements and things like that. Um, and we got lots of ideas on that front. Um, but and it's been doing pretty well. It's been doing, you know, I, I can't. I, I got to be honest and say it doesn't pay the bills just yet. Mm-hmm. But as a as a first foray into self published gaming, I am very proud of the ratings that it's gotten. I'm very proud of uh, the acceptance that it's gotten. I mean, it has such a broad scale acceptance that I'm really not finding anybody who is, you know, apart from the people who are looking at it for five seconds. And dismissing it as, oh, yeah, I know what this is, and not even trying it. Right. Across the board, if you play it for more than five minutes, you're going to be playing it for a lot more than five minutes. So right. I think we nailed it on this one. And I, and we'll only try to keep true to that as we move forward with it. Uh, and I, I can absolutely say I, I quite liked it. So I, I heartily recommend it if you're, if you're listening. Uh, are you guys a uh, – I, I hate to get into this aspect of the issue because I always – I never know what to do with this. Are you guys a 99-cent app or 199 or, or does it fluctuate? We, we vary. Um, okay. Right, right now it's 99 cents. And it's been – it started at 199. And the reason why we – we you know, and this is kind of a, yet another podcast topic, but – we felt we needed to charge for a couple of reasons. One, our, our monetization is very forgiving. There's it really no- is too. I, I want to point that out because I'm I'm as as hard assed a critic of that sort of thing as can be, but I, I don't mind in the least uh, the the rate of earning stars. And part of it Ed, is I don't I don't feel like I need to give you guys any money while I'm playing, which is bad news for you, but great news for me. Right, and and we we had a discussion about that, and we we decided to tone it down because. We didn't want to be in the Zynga, Kixai, Kabam land. Right. No offense to them. They're doing their thing, but we're doing our thing, and our thing is games for gamers. You know, I mean, trying to stay true to that old interplane mantra. And um, and so I think that that it's okay for us on that front, but we have to charge up front, you know, to get something out of it, to try to continue funding that kind of cool effort. So think about it. Think of it as a very tiny form of crowdfunding, right? Um, 
you know, and so right now it's 99 cents. I think we are going to have, you know, just for those people who don't even want to pay 99 cents, we are going to have some promotions coming up where it's going to be free for a little while, maybe on app a day or something like that. Um, and then it'll probably return to two, I mean, 199 for, uh, for a little while. And, you know, we'll, we'll fluctuate the price because we're trying to find its home in terms of what people are comfortable paying versus, uh, what's right to charge. Sure. Sure. Now, now let's talk a bit about the critical reception, uh, because you, you and I had a bit of a conversation about this. Uh, sure. It was certainly friendly. I don't think there's any acrimony here, but uh, on on the site that I that I run, on the site that this podcast is on, quarter to three, uh, we use a one to five star scale, uh, and five stars means I loved it. One star means I hated it, and everything in between uh, is you know two stars is I didn't like it, three stars is I liked it. And four stars, I really liked it. So I play Paper Galaxy. I liked it. Uh, it is, and this isn't a ding at all, but in ways it's a slight game. It certainly got some great meat to it, as, as we talked about. Uh, so I played it. I, I, I wrote a short review, and I gave it three stars, and, and I've still been playing it. However, Ed, that kind of hurts you guys, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it actually does. And this is what I call I mean, this happens everywhere in the world. Um, I call it decontextualization. It's a horribly big term for a, a simple thing. But as data shifts from one ecosystem to another, and it's, it's something no one's written about and someone should, but as data shifts from one ecosystem to another, its value becomes misrepresented. So, for, for example, you gave it three stars, and as you told me in your mail, that means you liked it, right? And that's a very linear five-star system which is great for everybody in your ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But it is widely known, for example, that in the App Store ecosystem, it's really a three-star system that's masquerading as a five-star system. Yeah. And, a th and, and three stars means you really got one star, and no one really even looks at apps that got three stars or less. They only look at apps that got a four or five star. So if I'm just an iOS guy, and I have been spending all my time iOSing, um, when I see a three-star review, I'm going to go, oh, it's, a, it's crap. All right, mm -hmm. moving on. Mm -hmm. And that's not what you intended, right? And, right. Then, and then one step further, when somebody as, you know, as horrible as, as Metacritic takes your three-star rating mm -hmm. and turns it into a 100-point scale, a further set of decontextualization happens because the moment it goes to a 100-point scale, well, A, it becomes a 60 but B, what that does is it puts it in the, in the most relevant contextual situation that all human beings have, which is academia. And in academia, what you have is a system of anything really below 75 is kind of crappy. So you have, you have academics you know, that says an A is 90 to 100, a B is an 80 to a 90, a C is a 70 to an 80, and everything else is a D or an F, which is subpar. So... When you have people who don't understand what's going on, and they see a 60, which is where your review went right. uh, in, in Metacritic, they see, wow, this game got a D, and and a, not even a D, a D minus, right? right? So in their review, in, the, in in their mentality, it's ooh, stay away from that. So that it's a, it's something that I don't know that we'll ever resolve in our in our community. It just takes education, but that happens all the time. Like it happened to Chevy. I mean. You know, glorious example of this was when they named the Chevy the Chevy Nova here in in the States, and then they exported that to uh, South American and Spanish countries, 
And the word nova, the, the word nova in Spanish is two words, nova, which means doesn't go. And so you have a car that on the, on the name of the car, it says this thing doesn't go. Right. Right. So complete decontextualization of something that is brilliant, you know, super, no, you know, superstar. Now, now let me add. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I'm done. Well, uh, so you, 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 you assert, you mentioned that you thought Metacritic was horrible. Uh, and I, I freely understand that I, I love the way you put it about moving data between ecosystems. Uh, Metacritic is one ecosystem. Quarter to three is another ecosystem. Exactly. Uh, why do you feel, though, that Metacritic is horrible? And I, and I ask because let, let me proceed with a, with a brief comment. Um, I think Metacritic in and of itself is not at all horrible. The problem if you want to call it that, and it's definitely a problem for folks like you who who rely so much on, on Metacritic, and, and that's a huge part of public perception. But the problem is that Metacritic is only as good as the information fed into it. There's nothing inherently right or wrong, good or bad, horrible or wonderful about Metacritic. It, it's just an aggregate. It's just an assembly of data, and it's only as good as the data fed into it. So why aren't you why don't you think the data fed into Metacritic is horrible instead of Metacritic itself? Um, well, first step is, is the decontextualization. Hmm? I mean, I think it's it's pretty harsh to say to for Metacritic not to be aware that um, you know several rating scales are linear, whereas hmm. the moment you go to a percentage rating scale, you have to consider how academia has taught all of the world, what to do with a percentage system, right? Right. So they're not considering their context. I mean, if, if I got on the phone with anybody at Metacritic and they started to argue that 60 was a good score, I, I would find that very hard to swallow. I think... I, I, you, go go ahead. ahead, sorry. Well, I, I love that you're, you're bringing up academics because I think that's exactly where that comes from. But the thing about academics is that most people graduate from it. You know, we don't go to school our entire lives. We leave that system behind. And I feel that part of what's happening in video gaming, part of what you see because we are a young industry, because so many people who write about video games are young, are right out of school, is that it is clinging to this academic scale uh, and it needs to let go of it. Because you don't see that on Metacritic in their coverage of, say, movies and music and, and television. This is something unique to video games. And I think it's a, a sort of a, I don't want to say sickness, but I, I think it's a sort of a juvenilia. It's something we need to move past, and, right. and it's unique to video games. You're, you're, um, you're, you're exactly right. I would totally agree with that. If you if you had asked me prior to you saying the word juven, I'm not even sure how you said that. I'm, um, But I agree with you. It shows our adolescence. It shows... Right. It shows the youthful because we haven't bifurcated from from academia yet. Yeah, we haven't moved away from it yet. I think we will eventually. The problem really comes in the business to business world because I'm not so concerned. I, I I am happy with what my public thinks of me. The challenge we have is is that getting new job opportunities at least historically, for the last five years uh, or last seven years, I think, historically, my ability to walk into any other publisher, EA, uh, you name it, you know, Square, uh, whoever whoever you want to list on this thing, because I've walked into most of them, mm -hmm. my ability to sell something to them and continue doing business is directly related to my Metacritic score. 
not because um, it should be, but because that's the easy way out for them. Right. And, and I'm not trying to make a, a huge disparaging comment, but Metacritic has become the default standard for most publishers' evaluation of developers, and they don't bother to understand the data that came in. They don't bother to look and see that it's a three-star, and a three-star means I liked it. You know, and they do, unfortunately, do use the academic scale. So what happens is, you know, and you get all sorts of double standards. I mean, I've had publishers tell me, hey, I don't work with anybody who has less than an 85 Metacritic. Right. And it's like, well, then you don't work with yourself because you don't have an 85 Metacritic. Right. But that doesn't seem to matter. So what what happens is, unfortunately, in this situation, if if I'm not scoring aces, I can't even get my foot in the door. And it becomes right. and my business becomes harder and my business of making games. It becomes it just becomes harder to even be listened to. Like I just had this happen the other day. Right. Um, a game you that we did that you didn't talk about was Thor, the movie game. Uh-huh. And Thor and Thor the movie game, self-admittedly, was totally panned, which I, I don't think is fair, but yet again, another topic for another time. But it was thoroughly panned in the press. And um, we have been doing great social games that have been getting good reviews. And we went into an unnamed publisher and said, hey, we want to do a social game for you. And their response was, well, you're going to have to explain your Metacritic performance on Thor. And I said, Why? That was another era of Liquid. We've moved on to social and mobile and browser. We are doing, we're, we're hot as shit. And, sorry. Sorry. We can cuss. <laughs> Go ahead. No, we can cuss on this podcast. <laughs> okay. We're, we're, we're hot on this. We're hot on this. We really know what we're doing. We're really doing well. Why do we need to explain, you know, what, what we did in a completely different genre at a completely different time? And they just couldn't get past it. They just couldn't move beyond it. And so that's the challenge. Is it's the B two B problem, not the not the B two C problem. Business to business versus business to consumer. What is that? What? Yeah, yeah. I apologize. Business to business. My my business relationships with publishers is right. what's being affected by these scores, not my business relation. My my game maker relationship with my customers. Okay, you know what? And that's great to hear you express it that way, Ed. Because because for me, the problem is. Uh, and I fully acknowledge that must suck for you guys. It's one of the many reasons I would have no desire to be involved in game development. Uh, <laughs> my hat's off to anyone who, who does that. Uh, but for me, I look at the, the Metacritic issue and what it gets down to for me, and I feel if this problem gets solved, it can eventually percolate up and maybe address your B2B problem. For me, the problem is one of grade inflation. And it is this idea that most reviewers only use that 7 to 9 range sure. because you know that's what they – anything below Below a 70 is is a failure. Um, so, so for me, the the problem is that other people are not using the entire range of their scale when they use a rating system, and and that's my pet issue. That's what I have a problem with, not with Metacritic, but with that data being fed into Metacritic. So for you know, me. Oh, go ahead. Well, I just want to say, for me, I feel it's really important to use the entirety of a, of a grading scale. Um, so, yeah, McMaster, get in, in here. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, because I, I know you wrote for them as well, but didn't on uh, GameShark, we used a you know, academia scale, and didn't it translate into the direct academia score? Which is a whole, yeah, which, uh, again, that's, uh, you I know, using my mind. Because I would never have given Duke Nukem Forever a D. 
or whatever. <laughs> like, it, you know, knowing that it's going to end up at a 60 or whatever. Well, that's, I mean, what that is doing is basically seeding ground, saying, yes, 1 to 100 should use the letter grade scale. I mean, I don't envy anyone who has to deal with translating, who starts off using the academic scale and then has to deal with translating it to the Metacritic scale or the 7 to 9 scale, in which case you're, right. you're again, not using the, ent- the entire range of, of ratings. Um, right. But, and that's one reason that I feel strongly, too. Ed, we talked a bit about... Um, well, do you feel it, it could maybe deserve a 3.5? And I understand where that comes from. That comes from trying to salvage some of how my three stars gets translated to Metacritic. But I feel the more finely, the, the, the more finer gradations there are in a rating scale, the less useful it is. Uh, for me, I feel it's important to sort of make a stand, use the entirety of your, your range, not sort of pussyfoot around with a 7.6 or whatever. Um, so that that's you know for you Ed I understand the business uh, situation but for me it's kind of about trying to revise the way we think of review ratings. Sure. Um, sure. And, and if we had a, and if and if we had a universal standard I would be totally happy. Like right. I, I think that's part of the problem is we're we're all still in that kind of uh, you know it's weird it's like reverse Tower of Babel it's like we need to harmonize and right now we're all talking different languages. <laughs> And, you know, Ed, I think there is, I wouldn't say universal standard, but for me, the goal is to get closer to the way people talk about other forms of entertainment. Right, right now, video games are, are trapped in this, this great inflated uh, sort of cheerleading form of criticism. Uh, you, know, you know, I think too much of the discussion about video games is cheerleading, and it doesn't involve the sort of, eyesight, the sort of insight that comes with criticism and, and varied perspectives. Uh, and that shows on Metacritic, and I hate that. Let me just ask you guys something, because I thought this was I, – I, I was fascinated at this statistic. If you look at the top ten um, selling video games of 2012, how many of them were under 80? What would you guess? Zero. That's kind of what I would have guessed, but there were two of them that were under 80. Uh, Lego Batman came in at 79 for whatever reason, and uh, Just Dance came in at 77. But, but otherwise... It makes, it makes perfect sense, though. Well, does it? Because now let me ask you this, Ed. Uh, how I do. Many, I think so. How many of the top 10 movies of 2010 were under 80 on Metacritic. Yeah, not, not the same not the same thing, though. I'll, I'll tell you I, why. Because that's why I disagree. As I do think it's the same. I think it should be the same thing. Because, it should be. Just real quick to answer the question, and then I want to hear from you, Ed, why you think it's not the same thing. Of the top 10 selling movies in 2012, nine of them came in under 80. The only one that was above 80% on Metacritic was Skyfall at 81. And I think that's where we should be. I think we should decouple the critical discussion from the commercial discussion and that we shouldn't expect that the top-selling games are going to be the, the, the top-rated games as well. Um, so, so go ahead, Ed. Why do you feel it should be different from, from the movie situation? Well, I, I, I don't think it should be different. Okay. I think I think oh, oh gosh so many angles so let me let me try to let me try to hit them one by one uh-huh. so first off you know as well as I do that reviews get bought still I mean and now I disagree. It, well go ahead go ahead okay I, I know for a fact because I know some journalists that when 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 fifty thousand dollars gets poured into a magazine that's dying uh-huh. for for ads. There is no way the editor is going to allow a bad review for that company's product. 
And so much so that in many paper magazines, at any rate, the, the number for the review has been taken out of the control of the writer's hands and given to the editor. So that's why you're seeing that enormous disconnect between text and number in many cases in reviews. And I know that that's, I mean, and I've been, I've, I've seen this and been told this by journalists. So I, I don't know what happens online, but in the paper, you know, in the dying paper magazine business, it's somebody throws 150 grand your way or 50 grand or 100 grand, the editor just isn't going to allow that review to, to, to be a 30. Right. You know, even so, if it's. I, I want you to keep going, but I just want to say in my experience, and I don't know if that happens or not, but I've never experienced that. I, I've been, I've been for, and I don't know if it's just because I've been fortunate enough, but I, I still believe in the, the separation between advertising and editorial. And I would like to think that that is enforced, and in my experience it has been. So I, I hope you're wrong, Ed. I don't know if you are, but I hope you are. So, so go ahead. I'm sorry I cut you off, but I just wanted to get that in there. You know what? I hope I'm wrong, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so as far as it being different from movies, that's one thing you mentioned, well, that you feel a lot of advertising, a lot of uh, uh, reviews are basically bought, quote-unquote. Well, but I think also it's, it's an interesting concept that you're saying that you want to get to a place where the top-selling content... Mm -hmm. The content that is being voted on with dollars mm -hmm. is being poorly reviewed by the critics, which okay. to me, when I, when I hear that, when I see that in movies, my, my very uh, consumer-oriented analysis is the critic has lost his way okay. and is no longer relevant to me. And, yeah. and that, Ed, I just want to, because that, that's a great point, but I disagree with it because when you say poorly reviewed, The Avengers was not poorly reviewed. The Avengers has 69 on Metacritic, which means it, it, it's a genre movie. It's a huge crowd pleaser. It was enormously well done, but it's not for everyone. There should be a variety, enough of a variety of perspectives on The Avengers that some people won't like it and that it's not going to have 90 on Metacritic. Uh, okay. I don't feel that that means poorly reviewed. And in the video game world, though, to your to your credit, to what you're saying, 69 is poorly reviewed. So I, I just disagree that that's how that should be characterized. Okay, you know what? And I completely agree with you. What I what I was thinking of is, for example, how uh, Transformers 2 was was nailed to the wall. As 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 and as a guy who loves movies and who believes we should talk about them critically, I feel that that was entirely appropriate. Um, like, did you feel that was un, unfair? Or I think it depends on on what I think the challenge with a, that a reviewer has is what metrics is he using to rate it. Like, I enjoyed Transformers too. I I maybe I'm sad to admit or happy to admit. <laughs> um, I, I enjoyed it, and okay. and my review had I written one would have come from that place. Okay, sure. And, and, and I, I know a lot of Hollywood wannabe friends who, will, who, who can roast anything mm -hmm. from Casablanca on down, can roast it, you know, alive, and leave me thinking it was the worst movie ever. And I think that's, it, it's a, it's an, I, I, I don't know. I, mm -hmm. I, I think there is a place for cheerleading. I think there is a place for supporting your, your industry, and and I think sometimes we get lost in the semantics of critical review, 
And, and, I, and I do believe that academia as a whole is lazy and teaches that deconstruction of something is the way that you show intelligence about it and that we never teach the reconstruction and analysis of the whole. Our, our, the way we analyze things is to rip it apart scene by scene or to dissect the frog. You know, but we never go back and reappreciate the whole frog as a working organism or the whole movie as a working organism. And, and I think we get some people get into the trap of just ripping things apart and not putting it back together and saying, but it was a really fun romp. So because of that, I'm going to say X. Sure. You know, we get lost in camera angles and and performances and and, you know, like for a great example of this actually is Kickstarter. So you look at Kickstarter's videos, right? Uh-huh. And most of them are horrible from a cinematic perspective. But many of them connect with you as a human, which is why people are funding that stuff. And I would, I would, you know, I kind of quiver to think what would happen if, if, if Kickstarter's, Kickstarter videos started getting reviewed by film critics. Because the, you, you see what I'm saying? There, there, there is a value to them, and it's subjective. And, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going on and on. I'm sorry. Well, no, and, and you know what? You're, you're absolutely right. I think, Ed, we, we ultimately agree in terms of the point because there, there is a value and it is subjective. And I think that when you see something like Transformers getting a bad review, even though you, Ed Del Castillo, you sat through it and you're like, hey, this is fun. It's a fun romp. I enjoyed it. When you are subjectively talking about something like that, you're going to get a wide range of opinions. And for Transformers 2, which, which, which eschewed that human element, which wasn't that concerned with storytelling, which was a lot of sort of Michael Bay special effects, a lot of people, they don't have anything to hook into. They don't resonate with that. You know, you talk about Kickstarter videos and the human element. A lot of people didn't see that in the Transformers, and therefore they didn't like it. It didn't speak to them. It didn't do anything for them. So they give it a, a one-star review. Right. Um, so, so whereas you like it. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say maybe what we need to go to, because I feel like in the movie era, in the movie industry, there's this box office number that counterbalances the, the, the critic review. Sure. And and more and more, of course, we have crowdsourced reviews of you know of movies. Maybe we need to get more towards that. Maybe we need to work on getting box office numbers to kind of counterbalance game reviews or or, and, and, or reaffirm. And that's per, that, that's exactly. I'm, I'm glad you put it that way because that's exactly what I'm getting at when I point out the difference between Metacritic's approach to the top ten video games and the top ten movies. In the top ten movies, you can go to Box Office Mojo and you can see the crowdsourcing. You can see what movies made the most money, and that's one perspective on movies. Then you can go to Metacritic and you can see the people who professionally write about movies, who see all the movies that come out in the year, and they bring that sort of context and that sort of discrimination for better or worse they bring that into the conversation and that's sure. an entirely different metric and i feel video games doesn't have that you used this word before so i'm going to use it again i feel that video games doesn't have that sort of bifurcation yeah you're absolutely right um, I, I, so i completely agree i think we're going to have to end this conversation with us agreeing mcmaster <laughs> come in here and tell us that we're wrong no i think you're right <laughs> I think it's the biggest issue with it. It's it's not that anybody doesn't like a game, so they mark it low. They don't like a game, so they mark it. Let's see. Right. You know, it's just kind of. It's like uh, you said at the beginning, Ed, with the stars. You're absolutely right on the uh, on iOS. 
three stars is just a kiss of death. And, you know, it, it really is. So, like, I understand what you're saying there. And, yeah, it's it's the same in, you know, gaming. It just, it's just it's kind of weird that we can't let go of that other 60%. Yeah. Uh, well, well, Ed, I, I you know, I, I hope that uh, – Anyway, I, I just feel like I, I really like what you guys did with uh, with Paper Galaxy. Uh, I genuinely liked it. I recommend it to people. And if you go into a business meeting and someone says to you, we only do work with people who get this number on Metacritic, you tell them that Tom Chick feels bad about his rating being translated to 60% on Metacritic. You single me out, by golly. <laughs> you, you know what, Tom? You are You are awesome. That is such an it, whether it ever happens or not. That is one of the nicest things I've heard all week. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, well, anyway, okay. So speaking of all week, it, it has been a fairly dramatic week. Let's talk about some news of the week here. Uh, we are each bringing you a news story that we want to talk about. McMaster, sorry that we we uh, didn't let you get in there that much. So why don't you start off by telling us what has been your choice for a news story of the week? Uh, Activision Skylanders has reached 500 million in U.S. sales. You know what, McMaster? McMaster, I think at least one person on this podcast was party to them reaching that number, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, that would be me. Uh, me too. Oh, whoa, you're uh, in there too, Ed. Yes. Uh, all right. So, actually, so McMaster, this might be a spoiler, but will we be hearing about Skylanders in the uh, later segment on the podcast? I don't think so. Okay, so because I want to ask you, so you guys both have this this uh, Skylanders thing. Did you see the announcement about Disney Infinity? No. No. Uh, so I, I think Disney's about to pull Skylanders out of the water. They announced something today. It'll be the, the day before you hear this podcast uh, on Tuesday. They announced something called Disney Infinity, and it is basically Skylanders with Disney licensed characters. The same oh. idea. You buy the base, you buy the figures with a little chip in them, uh, $75 starter pack. You can buy each individual figure for $13 or a collection of two of them for 20 But they're doing something uh, that I think I hate. If I were a shareholder at Disney, I would be like, yes, this is brilliant. If I were someone who wanted to play uh, Disney Infinity, I would think this is awful. They are selling things called power discs. So what I want you guys to imagine, because you know how Skylanders works, imagine if in addition to the figures, you can buy these little flat discs with pictures on them for, I think you get two of them for $5. You put the disc on top of the platform, and then you put the figure on top of the disc. And the disc modifies the figure, like gives it a special power or a special weapon. So you can now buy your Skylander and your power disc separately. It's flipping genius. It is. And not only that, Ed, listen to this. You buy them like you buy magic cards in blind packs. You're buying oh. two of them, and you don't know what you're God. getting. Oh. You, know, you know, I'm friends with Bill Rofer on Facebook, and all day he's been chortling about some sort of thing. And this, this is it. I knew it. Okay. Yeah. So uh, th those 500 million that are being spent on Skylanders, I, I think some of that might be siphoned off by Disney now. Uh, See, I, I think that's a huge mistake. The blind packs. Now you say that from from a perspective of a collector, or from a perspective of people at Disney trying to make money. So I mean, it, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I, I think so. So my my take on Skylanders is awesome game. Really enjoyed it. Wanted to collect and couldn't. Right, because yeah. of the shortfall in inventory. So 
I walked away. Oh, not because of a reluctance to spend money. You just couldn't find the things you wanted to buy. It's not. They're, they're impossible to find now. Yeah. So. Wow. I couldn't find them. So, so I look at Activision and go, love that you made this because I have been talking about breaking this fourth wall in a real way for years. Love that you made this. Hate that you left so much money on the table. Sure. Because people wanted to buy and couldn't. And what blind packs do, I mean, says the guy who was deeply into Mage Knight, deeply into Heroclix, you know, deeply into magic. What blind what blind packs do is they create a virulently lifelike secondary market ah. that that isn't the company's money. Money left on the table. Good point, Again, Ed. Again, right, because the, the truth is that there is a small populace who is willing to have 20 Mickeys to get the one Mini, right? Because that's what happens in these blind packs, right? There are the rare ones. There are the uncommon ones. And right. so you end up that the goal or the hope is that you're going to buy many. But the and there are some people who will do that. But I think by and large, if it becomes a collectible market of any kind, eBay becomes the number one place where money is made. <laughs> you I'm know what? Sure. That, that makes me think of uh, just from the perspective of if I were like an evil guy at Disney, I would find some way to bind. Uh, one of these power discs to a given Xbox Live account. Oh, awful. Yeah, you're, you're being awful. Stop talking so they don't hear you. Like, a great example. Okay, so so this this is a little bit I, – I have a little bit of domain experience on this, only because um, – nasty little secret. I didn't work through college. I, worked, I put myself through college speculating on baseball cards and comic books and, huh. and basically buying uh, large quantities of rookies – and selling them out and and this kind of stuff. And the number one thing that happens in a blind pack is massive purchases by a select few who then piece them out. Ah, right. Yep. Yep. You know, and they really piece them out hard, right? But the money isn't going to a Disney guy. The money isn't going to a Disney stockholder. So I, I believe they're leaving money on the table because the, the truth is that any Disney fan, including me, because I'm a big Disney fan, I have a season pass, the whole family does, I would want every one of these figures. Mm-hmm. But am I really willing to go onto eBay and battle for them? Probably not. And even if I did, that's not money that Disney's getting. Right. So, so does it just turn you off of the, the whole concept of Disney Infinity? or Because when you, when you say, uh, you know, the blind packs leave money on the table for Disney, they couldn't cash in on that money if they weren't blind packs. If they're just selling them, it doesn't create that aftermarket that you're talking about. If they're just selling them in clear, transparent plastic. Right, um, but they're getting the incremental sales that they can't otherwise get. Because and, I'll put the whole set. It's kind of like the Skylanders thing. I see. I want the whole set of Skylanders, and I can't buy them because they're not available. But right. if they were, I would own them. They've lost that money. It's the same thing. I have to look at the incremental revenue that I have to spend in order to be able to have a whole set. And it's probably not worth the hassle for me to go onto eBay to try to finish my set. So maybe I buy a pack. Maybe I buy two. Maybe even I buy three. But the first time I get a duplicate, I burn hard on that. And and the second time I get a duplicate, I burn even harder and probably don't buy anymore. So goodwill, too. Like the cost in goodwill has got to be enormous at some point. Yeah. Right. Um, 
Well, uh, you guys can uh, – we'll find out how well you guys can hold out in June when Disney Infinity comes right. out. Uh, hey, but I will uh, say this. Getting back to his Skylanders comment, mm-hmm. genius. Genius, genius, genius to put part of the gameplay in a toy. Yeah. And especially a toy – like, you, I don't know if you guys remember, but years and years ago in the 80s, there was a, there was a painting software called Fractal Paint. And what was unique about Fractal Paint – was that it came in a full-blown paint can, right, with a label, <laughs> with a label on the outside and everything. Yeah, I, didn't know, I didn't know a single artist who did not have that gosh darn paint can because it was a badge of honor to be able to put that on your shelf. It was a, it was a thing that said, I am an artist. And I have said for years, give me my freaking – like, let me defeat the boss in the game and then mail me my action figure of the boss. <laughs> That's hey, like, I, I believe in the olden days, you could like, there were some games, I don't remember specifically, where if you took a picture of you at the final screen and sent it to the yeah. company, they would print out and send you a certificate or something. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Or, or yeah. I don't know if you guys remember Sword Quest, that had like, it was an Atari game, that it, it, they had four different uh, games, the fourth one was never made, but each one was like a competition, and at the end of it, there was this like bejeweled treasure, a real one in real life, that was given away. Wow. I mean, some really cool, I've always believed in breaking the fourth wall, and when Skylanders came out, I said, that's pure genius, it's going to make billions of dollars, and then the supply chain problems hit, but right. I, I think, I think Skylanders is going to keep doing well. I think their characters are lovable. I think their characters are are very cool, and um, I think the fact that there's gameplay associated. And, you know, the other thing that that hasn't been talked about is they did it on every platform. You know, oh, yeah. there's Skylanders online. There's Skylanders on my <laughs> Wii. There's Skylanders on my iPhone. Super genius again. I've played every one of those games because my kid wants to extend his experience. Uh, Disney Infinity has some plans to do like a special iOS tie-in that powers up your characters in the other versions of the game that you can't get any other way. Go ahead, sorry. Become, those guys have become such a good, fast-follow company. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, what too, if, another thing that you're going to have a, like, a barrier to entry uh, for them is like a lot of parents aren't going to want to buy it. You know, they've already got Skylanders. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like yeah, but but you know what, McMaster, McMaster, please, I need Little Mermaid, McMaster, McMaster, I need, I need uh, the tow, I need that, the tow truck, I need Vern, the tow truck from from Cars, McMaster, oh, no. I need, not McMaster, any. I need Little Mermaid, McMaster. <laughs> See, did that work? Did that make you want me to shut up enough that you would buy me Disney Infinity? Oh, I don't know. That gets into a weird place since you're not my kid. <laughs> I might just hit you. <laughs> Uh, so real quick, I want to say one of my favorite things about the success of Skylanders is that the developer, are, it's Toys for Bob, and I've loved those guys forever. And I couldn't, you know, Activision is an evil empire, whatever. They're the suits, fine, whatever, the publishers. But I'm just delighted that Toys for Bob has has done something so completely, overwhelmingly successful. Uh, those guys are great. Uh, Absolutely. Kudos to them. So real quick, McMaster, uh, tell me about your experience with uh, with Skylanders. Oh, I've uh, I really liked it so far. Sarah got me the original set for Christmas. She found it with like one of the special edition figures. Uh, so I uh, I played with it for a bit, and then I, I picked up Giants uh, on sale and uh, 
got a few of the figures. It's a really cool. Uh, it's a really cool little game, but it's. Uh, I can see where it'd get prohibitively expensive really fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so how many how many characters all told do you have at this point? We're gonna we're gonna, have to, um, gonna keep a running tally on the quarter to three games podcast for how many Skylanders characters you have. So uh, as of this podcast, what's the count? I have nine. All right, we're going to keep uh, track of that number and see where it goes noob. over successive weeks. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I'm a total noob. I've, I've only, I've, you know, I, I got the original set, and then I got uh, the upgrade came with Tree Rex, the uh, the inimitable Tree Rex, and um, I picked up two more of the giants, like the the dude with the bee dude, and then there's Bouncer, I believe, or something. He's a like a robot. And then a few of the regular figures, but like yeah, I couldn't find really any of the other giant figures uh, around. So. McMaster, where do these live in your house? Uh, right now, they live kind of all over the place, uh, but uh, I try to keep them away from the cats. So they usually stay in. No, oh, that's right. They're uh, they're in uh, they're under my entertainment center. That's right. You should get you should get some of the characters just for your cats. Oh God. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, don't don't encourage Activision because they'll have like Skylanders for pets very shortly. I'm sure. Yeah, like Chew Toy Skylander. Absolutely. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Hey, you have to have your dog chew it open, and then you get like a power up in the game. I like it. So, McMaster, what is the uh, what is the count at for Activision now? Five hundred million. Five hundred million. So they're halfway to your uh, predict. Well, not e- they're halfway to. Meeting the baseline of your prediction for billions, Ed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so Ed, what then is your news of the week? What's happened this week that uh, that stands out for you? Oh wow! Um, okay, I my news for the week was what they're calling the unconsoles that have come out of CES. Mm-hmm. The proliferation of peripheral hardware that can deliver content and games to people. So, for example, NVIDIA just announced the Shield, which looks like a game controller with a flip-up screen, so it's a standalone independent device. Of course, we have Ouya that came out last year uh, that is Android-based console uh, outside of the normal consoles that are offered. And we have, you know, GameStick, which is kind of like this game pad that has this uh, US, uh, this Bluetooth-connected uh, game stick that you can plug into the back of your TV. And so you can basically any TV can be become a console, and you can take it with you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my news of the... Of and the are, you, are you... It sounds like you're... Ex- so a lot of people, the, the, the correct way, and I'm using correct in quotes here, Ed, to cover these, to discuss them, is to uh, mention the announcement and then sneer. Uh, yeah, so yeah. It, it sounds, Ed, like you have a, you're a little bit more optimistic about what these are going not to do. Not snarling as much as we're used to. Yeah, you're not being dismissive enough, Ed. Look, I, I mean, to, to, I, I had to pick a new, a new, less violent term, but let's just say, if pipes are laid, water must flow. So, um, so for me, for me, the, the proliferation of hardware uh, providers—they're kind of like vending machines. They're all going to need soda. And and for me as a businessman, that's really great because not only, you know, I, I have to always differentiate my, my game playing side from my business side, right? I love making games. I love, I will love it until the day I die. 
And when I see more people giving me launch platforms to be able to make my games, both sides of me light up. The game-making side that says, yay, I didn't waste my life doing this. And B, <laughs> the business side that says, and there might be some money in it for me too. You know, I might not be poor and destitute in making games. I might actually be able to do something really, really cool. So I like seeing new platforms because I do, I mean, it's a larger discussion, but I do believe the bigger battle is that we're all fighting to discover what the language of technology is and that someday we will rehomogenize around that and we will do incredible things when we have one technological language. But in the meantime, what we're seeing is what we saw in the 80s. You know, it started that the only way to get a game out there was to build it yourself on your own and then put it out of shareware. And then, and then hardware platforms proliferated. And what that created, because production values increased, et cetera, it created a, a demand for more content, more games. And so we had the heyday, you know, we had that, that arcade blow up, the, the ColecoVision, the, the Atari 2600, 800, 6400, you know, we had, we had the Apple, we had the Apple II, we had, um, you know, the tra the TRS-80, we had, uh, Intellivision. I mean, we had a massive proliferation of consoles. And what that really did is it got, it flushed this, this industry full of desire, hope, change, money, all of the good things. And so I'm super excited about it, if you can't tell. I mean, <laughs> I, I love that you point out, Ed, that this is from the perspective of a guy who makes games, because that, that's something that guys like me and McMaster, who just play games, we kind of lose sight of how that must look like to you. Because for us, as guys who play games, who end up buying the systems, just having, having to choose which system do I want to play this on, you know, we remember being burned by the Engage and Virtual Boys. And, you know, I remember, I remember playing a, an Atari Lynx way back when. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, that thing just I, – I was so bright-eyed. I was sure that this was going to be the most awesome, enduring piece of technology ever. And I feel that way now about my PlayStation Vita. It's like I've learned nothing, you know. It's like the, the links yeah. didn't teach me anything. So I, I love how you bring that, that perspective to it when, you know, you mention uh, – if the pipes are laid, the water must flow. You say that, and then I look down at the soil, and I see all these, these littered dry pipes that have broken <laughs> into shards. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the, the unfortunate truth about all product is that the consumer is the R&D department. And, and that, yes. is true, that is true in everything from blenders to cars to, to video games. Right. We're all By learning what you want. Uh, if the pipes are laid, the water must flow. Is that uh, is that Henry Four Part One? Which <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, my news of the week. Uh, uh, just uh, real quickly, we'll go over this, and then we've got some games we want to talk about. Uh, so there's a Massachusetts family that was traveling over the holidays, and they pull into a, a rest stop, and you know they've got their 12 year old in tow, and it's a, it's a husband and a wife, um, and they notice in this rest stop. It's uh, in Massachusetts. It's a state-owned rest stop. They notice these arcade games with the big old like plastic machine guns mounted on them, uh, and the father is keenly aware at this rest stop that he's only an hour from Newtown in Connecticut, where where the massacre happened. Uh, 
and he's he sort of gets this sense that that's not really right. You know, there's these this, this little arcade area is where kids come in and they play while the parents are getting gas and buying food and whatnot. Uh, it's for the kids to stretch their legs and be entertained for a little bit. Isn't it a little bit awkward that there's this big, huge plastic gun game here? so close to Newtown. Uh, so he, he complains to the state's Department of Transportation, uh, which is the department that manages these rest stops, and uh, within a few days, those games were removed. Uh, the ones that were mentioned by name in a Boston Globe article were uh, Time Crisis and Beachhead, and I think both of those are things with, with plastic machine guns mounted on them. Um, now, the father... Time Crisis more pistols, but... I think. Ah, okay, thank you. Well, yeah, at any rate, they're, they're basically based on a gun peripheral, if I'm not mistaken. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, now, now, the father who complained about this, he was very clear when he spoke to the Boston Globe in saying that he has no objection about what games people play in their homes. His objection was that this was in a public part of a state-owned rest stop. Um, and... I, I know that traditionally a lot of gamers will hear this and will think, oh, that's silly. There's no connection between violence and, and video games. And uh, it's silly that the state caved to this one uptight father complaining. I mean, I think that's the traditional gamer perspective. And I couldn't disagree more. Uh, I completely sympathize with what this father was saying. And I feel that if we are going to have ESRB ratings on games in which a game that emphasizes gunplay gets a T rating, and is therefore recommended for 13 and up. You know, if you're a parent, you can buy this for your 8-year-old, and that's fine. It's up to the parents. But if there's a game that's the equivalent of a T rating, it should not be in a public, basically E-rated area. Um, so I completely sympathize with uh, the father who complained. I applaud the actions of the state of Massachusetts uh, Department of Transportation. And I hope that other arcades will take this sort of thing into consideration and consider either separating, not necessarily shipping them all the way out, but, but somehow separating games that are fine for, for E-rated, you know, E-rated games, fine for kids and families, versus the more traditional uh, violent fare that parents might not want their kids seeing or playing. So uh, that happened. Does uh, either of you guys want to champion? Does either of you guys want to champion the more traditional, uh, the state of Massachusetts is uptight and did the wrong thing perspective? Uh, no. Wow. Well, uh, all right. Well, that was easy. Can I take, <laughs> can I take a cautionary cautionary Absolutely. stance? Absolutely. Please do it. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I. I in this particular case, I think it was the right thing to do. And I completely agree with your stance about exposing T-rated games to non-T-rated folk. Uh -huh. um, I think the challenge that I have, or, or the, the concern that I have, is when a society starts using removal and thus enforced ignorance in lieu of education. Okay. And and you know it uh, we have done a good job of of child proofing our entire society. And and I, I just I'm nervous that it, it allows lazy parents to be lazier. Now because, in this Oh, go ahead, sorry. So as a parent, let me give you an alternative perspective uh, that that is probably uh, unorthodox. Okay. So as a parent, this happens all the time to me. The 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 inappropriateness of something for my six-year-old being exposed to him happens all the time for me. Mm -hmm. And I think as part of my job 
to contextualize that and use that as a growing time to educate him as to how the world works, as opposed to trying to shunt those pieces away. You know, the, the, the note I wrote down when I was thinking about your piece is, when your child gets too close to the fire of the stove, you never talk about getting rid of the stove. You talk about educating the child about fire, mm-hmm. right? And and I, I'm, I'm just a little nervous that if we're going to start pulling stoves out of kitchens because children are getting burned, that what we're doing is exacerbating the problem. Sure. Not, you know... In this particular instance, Ed, do you feel, though, and I'm not at all being facetious when I ask this, I genuinely am curious, do you feel that there is a lack of opportunity to talk to your six-year-old about the fetishization of guns in the United States? I mean, is that is that something that you think that there, you know, do you feel that there aren't opportunities for that? Like, I feel whether or not these game cabinets with the guns are in arcades, that is so pervasive in our culture that there is no danger anytime soon that children and parents are going to be protect or that, that there's going to be ignorance substituted. You're uh, absolutely there. right. And, uh-huh. and no, I, I think you're absolutely right. There is no real discourse at that level that you can have with a six year old. And I, I wouldn't even pretend that, which is why I think they did the right thing in this case. Um, I do too. But, but I, I'm, I just, I'm just saying that, you know, use that, cabinet existing there because like you said they're not going away anytime soon right i mean they're in my they're in the the local theater that's next to my house and my kid always wants to play them every time we go by right and my answer to him is you know we sit down and we talk about the role of guns in the world and he doesn't get half of what i'm saying but what he gets is the tone in which i'm speaking with it is very serious and it's something to be taken with responsibility and we pick another game right one that he's more ready for Right. And and I'm always nervous when because I'm also nervous about the avalanche effect. Right. Everybody's looking for a scapegoat. And mm-hmm. and, and these kind of things kind of set a precedent. And I don't want I don't want video games to be blamed for this because I don't think they are to blame for this. Mm-hmm. And but I do think that there is such thing as decorum and sensitivity. And and, and you know, you, you made the best possible argument you could make, which is the T the T rated. Um, and you know, I don't want my kid pulling a Playboy off the shelf either, right? right? right so, right. so, and it's 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 no different. It really is no different. It just happens that in our society, we're okay with violence and we're not okay with sex, whereas it's the opposite in Europe. Right. You right, know. Right. So I'm I'm with you. I, I am with you. I just we got to be we got to tread carefully here because it's easy to go on a witch hunt, especially when when we start getting uh, what do they call it in the law. Uh, you know, precedence. Right, right. Oh, sure, yeah. No, uh, and reason I really don't have any problem with it overall is it's on state-owned property. It really shouldn't be spousing such. No, that's a good point. It's uh, a really good no, point. No, like, if it was private property, it's, it's pretty much up to the owner of the private property. But if it's the state, they, they really should be more sensitive to that kind of thing, I guess. Yeah, like, I, I cannot – well, I don't know. Like, I, I – Part of me wants to think that, yeah, movie theaters should consider this as well. Uh, but you're right, McMaster. Because it's a state-owned situation, it requires a whole different set of criteria. But I honestly wouldn't mind if movie theaters decided, you know what, we're showing uh, frequently showing you know, Nemo 3D. We don't necessarily want parents to have to drag their kids past these big full gun, full-sized gun cabinet video games, so we're going to take them out. I would support that. Uh, I yeah. would think that would be a good idea. Um, 
So I don't know. Yeah. Sure. And, and you know what? Hats off to the state of Massachusetts for responding quickly. I mean, I read yeah. the article that you sent, and I was really blown away. It's like the guy said that it didn't even have to be escalated, that some the, the very first tier or second tier of people decided to do this. Yeah. So yeah. hats off to the state of Massachusetts for responding quickly, responding effectively, and dealing with the problem in a, in a very uh, understandable manner. Yeah, it's sort of funny. The reporter got to him, and he was like, I haven't even seen this. Like, someone else took care of it before it even reached my desk. Yeah, so. Uh, all right, well, let's talk some video games of the week. Uh, Ed Del Castillo, what have you chosen for your game of the week? I, you know, I have been doing a lot of app diving lately. Uh-huh. And, and what I mean by that is going into, going off the charts and and uh, looking for gems that are that it, people have forgotten about. You know, Ed, when you put it that way, I think of the term dumpster diving. Is is yeah, does it have much in common? Okay, except that I, I think there's still a lot of wonderful edible foods. So I guess I'm one of those freegans. You know, um, I'm, I'm an app freegan. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. So uh, I'm currently playing Dungeon Defiler. What? You made that up. That's not a real thing. It is a totally real thing. Dungeon Defile. Uh, and it's currently free, just in case anybody wants to try it, so no no risk. It is your super classic dungeon crawl, almost turn-based. Um, it has. It's a story of a guy who's kind of like this, you know, witcher kind of irreverent uh, adventurer. You never see yourself. It's all first person. And it's got this kind of neat, like, I'm delving through the dungeon. I tap on a room, and it exposes the other rooms that I can go into. And a room is either empty, or it has a treasure, or it has, like, and it's all kind of 2D, and it has a 2D monster appears. And then the fight mechanic is, it's like, it shuffles and, and deals a set of cards, and then you're picking which cards you want to flip over. And depending on the difficulty of the monster, changes the number of cards that are flipped over, changes how many cards you can flip over before a reshuffle occurs, and changes um, the types of cards that are in the deck. And so, uh, and then there are numerous mechanisms. You have your health bar. The monster has his health bar. Um, you also have an armor bar which prevents you from taking damage, and there are armor repair kits to heal your armor bar. There are, there are health potions to heal your health bar, and it's kind of a resource management game of trying to get through the dungeon without dying because the damage doesn't self-heal from room to room. It, it's lasting, so it's it's a very unforgiving game. So it's kind of, but I was really going, I was trying to say, are there any hardcore D&D experiences? And this has like a good mix of text description, and you actually feel like, you know, you're, you're playing through the dungeon, you actually get the vibe of the dungeon. Like, oh, it's an abbot monastery dungeon, and there's ch- Gregorian chanting going on in the background. And, and the art is okay. I, I don't want to bag on fellow developers. You know, they, and the game mechanic, you know, I, I, I got some ideas of how to make it better, but, but I was really enjoying it. You, you know, know, Ed, you, you had me at set of cards. <laughs> yeah, that's all it usually takes. I, I love the idea of it. So is it, are you building a deck, or it just gives you a certain number of cards for an encounter? No, yeah, it, it just it just splays out the cards for an encounter. Okay, and and you can pick up, uh, re, you can pick up reveals, which will allow you to see which like there are different like there's you swung and you missed, 
uh, you swung and did little damage, you swung and did big damage, then you used a magic spell, which usually does big damage, and then the reverse, you know, the, the monster has all the same ones in reverse. Oh, They're, I like that. Yeah, you broke his armor, he broke your armor. Um, and Ed, have uh, you seen, um, oh, I wish I could think of the name, I, I want to say Blue Tongue, I could be wrong about that. Uh, a developer, which is in, includes some former irrational folks, is doing a game called Card Hunter. Yeah, yeah, no, I love it. I've been waiting for it to come out forever. Uh, Blue Man 2. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, And and it sounds like when you describe Dungeon Defiler, it sounds like a kind of uh, similar to that Card Hunter approach, where they're taking those kind of tropes from that that D&D dungeon crawl, and they're using cards to express it. Uh, I love the sound of that. Card Hunter reminds me of a digital talisman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Really? Now, in, in uh, Dungeon Defiler, uh, it, are the levels procedurally generated? Are you moving through random dungeons, or it's the same dungeon every time? I, I feel like they're procedurally generated because I have died in the dungeons, and when I restart, it's not the same It's not the same thing. But, I mean, you know, I don't want to oversell it. Sure. Because it's not in the charts for a reason. But, <laughs> well, but, but it's no, great. When, when you're app diving, that's exactly the kind of information you need to return with to bring us. So, uh, right. now, uh, <laughs> You mentioned you've died. Does it have the sort of roguelike approach to a permadeath, where you die, you lose your character, you have to start over? No. They, they, well, their monetization scheme revolves around reviving yourself. Huh? So, oh, Ed. Whoa, wait a minute. How does this work? Okay, so so it, it's it's pretty simple and very forgiving. Um, when you die, you can re, you can re, if you have a revive potion, you can start right there where you were. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a revive potion, you can buy one for real money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also buy uh, any of the other powers, armor kits, potions, etc. But if you don't have them, um, it's a start over and lose a certain amount of experience. Start start the dungeon over and lose a certain right. amount of experience. Right. But there uh, is a non-paying way to do it. And you can find the revive potions as well, or you can only buy them? I, I have been able to find a couple of revive potions, but they're definitely rare. Okay. More, okay. more, more common is the armor repair kits and the health potions. Mm-hmm. Uh, McMaster, what do you think of the name of this game? Dungeon Defiler. Yeah. Uh, sounds like some dude does some bad stuff in a dungeon. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like it's almost redundant. Like, aren't dungeons by default already kind of like gross and defiling? <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of defily defiler. McMaster, what's a better name? Dungeon Defiler or Dungeon Siege? I go a dungeon siege. And they never never made sense to me. Why would you siege a dungeon? What's in there that you want? Um, some asses to kick. I would think that's, <laughs> that's straight in. Uh, Ed, do you know offhand the name of the developer of Dungeon Defiler? Oh, I. I that's okay. I did, but yeah, sorry, I did look it up. I will look it up while you're talking about the other games, and you can ask me again. Game, if you, uh, the game kitchen. The Game yes. Kitchen. Thank you, yes. McMaster. It sounds, sounds like McMaster's already downloading it. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, yeah, okay. I always do. Uh, all right, so, uh, McMaster, while you are downloading what may very well be your pick for next week's Game of the Week, what have you chosen this week? We know it's not Skylanders. I thought it was going to be Skylanders because you sent me a picture that I only realized what it was after you told me you'd gotten <laughs> Skylanders. You sent me a picture of some cartoon thing. I was like, what is that, some Pokemon thing he's sending me? And it was apparently, I guess, your favorite Skylander. But No, I can't get that guy. I can't find him anywhere. Thump back. I want that guy for you. 
I love that you now know the names of Skylanders. McMaster, could you, if you were in a contest, could you name more Skylanders or more Pokemons? At this moment, probably Skylanders. All right. It's fresher in my memory. Uh, And yet it's not your game of the week, huh? Oh. Then what, what what have you chosen for us this week? Uh, you know, I have chosen, I think, what is one of my least favorite games in quite some time, because I, I want to talk to you about this. Uh, Campus Life is uh, my game of the week, which is, it's not yours. No, I, I know, I read your review today. But, uh, <laughs> you did not you need don't to get do off that. that easy. You do not get off that easy. <laughs> All right, McMaster, why don't you go ahead, tell people what I've done. It was a terrible oh, thing, I know. Oh, my God. Well, if you don't know Tom and I, you have no earthly idea how competitive we are. So, uh, uh, I get a challenge in freaking Campus Life. It's a game center game. It's an iOS game. So you turn on your iPad and there's a little pop-up saying, hey, Tom Chicks challenged you to to Campus Life (laughs) on on your iPad, right? Right. Right. So, uh, yeah, uh, I've been playing Campus Life. And what is Campus Life? Uh, it's a sorority house uh, simulator, um, you know, and I blame Owen Faraday for this largely, but yeah, both of you. <laughs> um, Sorry, it, it is. <laughs> it's the most insipid, like ridiculous game I've played in a really long time. McMaster, you uh, can rescue orphaned puppies. Why is that a bad uh, thing? Uh, you know, I have a dog now as well because I purchased land and there was a dog on it. I guess that's how that worked out. <laughs> name is Hus- yeah, the name is Husky, and you now have a quest to extend your owned the, the land you own to get Husky to the beach so he can play on the beach. That That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Yeah, I like that. I like that you, you have a quest to purchase the beach uh, house, which, are, which costs 199 gems or diamonds or whatever. Yeah, so that's only. So what's that going to be? That's going to be two dollars, McMaster. Pay your two dollars in micropayments and get that dog to the beach already. That poor, poor husky needs needs his beach house. Um, it's that and uh, all manner of fun stuff that that really just drives me insane about uh, campus life. I had to go into my notifications and like shut a lot of stuff off. Because this game is the most buzzing, like, beeping, banner-throwing, like notification-throwing game I've ever seen. Every time something happens, you get, like, 14 notifications. So, you know, every time my friend Andrea had some money for me, which, I mean, almost sounds like a pimp simulator, I mean, honestly, if you keep getting, like, texts about how you got to collect money from all these girls. Um... I have to I log in, and then any quest I start or anything, if I want to place a piece of furniture, you have to sit there and wait like two or three minutes unless you pay a diamond. Yeah, but then it'll it'll if you if you don't want to wait, you can go play another game, and it'll send you a convenient notification telling you that your sofa is ready to be placed. So convenient. It's just like there's nothing that it, it doesn't want to tell you about. Like there's quests in here that I don't want anything to do with, and they, it sends me notifications about them nonstop. There's well, only McMaster, they're going to expire in three days. These, some of these quests are only good for three days, and it needs to make sure, it, it wants to verify that you're just going to let this quest lapse rather than paying the micropayments to enable it. It just doesn't want you to make the mistake of forgetting 
and then missing the op- this once in a lifetime opportunity. Oh. And I appreciate it. Uh, trust me, uh, I've got a lot <laughs> of notifications about the different uh, book drives, and uh, you know, I, yeah, I got the orphanage one. By the way, that one's really good. You just go around like shaking your stove and uh, stuff like that until, or I'm sorry, not even shaking your stove. You just kind of flail around near your stove. And since I like to try to line stuff up when I design a house, I like to put stuff against walls. So. The girls often will wander outside and try to accost the stove through the wall, and then afterwards, bacon flies out of it with like fifteen dollars. And it is one of the most baffling concepts I have ever seen for like trying to make uh, money. And uh, you know, and it's just like everything in the game is a money sink. Uh, you can play it with your boring furniture, as you mentioned in your review. Uh, or you can buy awesome furniture for real world money, which. Who would want to? But uh, Master, I guess don't you want your don't you want your sorority house to look nice? Not really. Uh, I just want to get more points than you. Uh, that's really all I care about at this point. Uh, it took me forever to figure out even how to get points in this game because really it's just a bunch of paper dolls flailing around uh, on the screen uh, and a bunch of countdowns. I don't really. Uh, that's so, yeah. That that's it in a nutshell. Now, McMaster, here and now, you and I, I will publicly pledge to never spend a single cent on this game if you will do the same. Oh yeah, no problem. Okay. <laughs> I mean, don't think I haven't thought about it. Don't think I haven't thought. Hey, if I spend a dollar now, I can get my sorority up to level fifteen, and it'll send a nag to McMaster, and him know, you know, and that's like a week's worth of grinding before he'll ever get there. Is that worth a dollar to me? Don't think I haven't considered that, McMaster. You know, admittedly, I thought about it too. Um, just because, man, man, it sh- it it puts out a message to all. Like, uh, you know, don't step to me. My sorority is awesome. All right, so a gentleman's agreement, McMaster, or in this case, sorority sister's agreement, not sorority to spend sister. any, no, not a single penny will be spent on campus life, no matter what. And that goes for your, your wife, too. She can't jump in there and try oh, to beat yeah. my score, and, uh, so you know. Uh, Ed, if you friend us on uh, on Game Center, you can get <laughs> campus life nags. <laughs> oh, God. You know, and it's like... I'm tempted to friend you. And then, and then all temptation ceases when you say something like, "And I'll put you on campus life." God, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like Tom spent like a diamond, and it challenged everyone on his friends list. So, and it's not like I didn't think I was going to get a challenge. Don't get me wrong; I know, I, I know it's coming. It's what I deserve. But it, it just kind of oh, the whole thing. It's just, it's so nuts. It's the most. It's it's a Facebook scam on the iPhone, basically. Uh, Ed, do you ever find yourself sinking into those? Have there, has there ever been one of those kind of like free-to-play, micropayment-driven, you know, sort of baldly business model-driven games that you found yourself sinking into? Yeah, I mean, lots, to be honest. I, 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 are there any of them that are good? Let me put it that way. Like, are there any of them that you would recommend people check out? Wow. Um, you know, I, I was a big fan of Warstrom when it was out, but it's not anymore. Uh, digital card game. Uh, I think Confrontation's pretty good, which is another digital card game. Okay. But these are all, you know, the challenge I have with all of these, which is, I, I mean, I, I I have a professional need to go into these, right? But um, 
to understand them and to be a part of them, especially if I'm doing social games, Facebook games like we were doing. But if you look at, for example, what we did with Heroes of Neverwinter, which was a Facebook game in the D&D universe, I think the fundamental difference between what we tried to do and what and what other people do is it's it it's like you said already it, it it doesn't have to feel like a money sink and it doesn't have to feel like when I do this I'm just going to have to do this again 5 minutes from now mm-hmm. right and and so I think it's it's great that this is happening it's all part of a new era of exploration of games and I think it'll pass I think I think it will because these games fundamentally do everything for you. They just ask you for money every now and then. And as a result of doing everything for you and the consequences of your actions not mattering, they don't create any memories. Right. You know, and, and that is the key to, to a long-standing game, is that it create memories. And it, you feel that your, your experience is fundamentally different because of a choice. Not because of a dollar you spent, but because of a choice you made. And so my two cents is... None of these games hold me for very long because I very quickly, like, you know, I played, oh, my gosh, remind me the 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 RTS that Digital Chocolate put out on the Facebook. Um, gosh. I don't think I know it. Yeah. Uh, neither. Um, or, well, I shouldn't say RTS. It was a turn-based uh, strategy game. But it was, like, very advanced Warsy. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm trying to remember what it was. It was kind of fun. I played it for a pretty a, a pretty long time, and then the ba- game balance kind of all fell apart, and the monetization started to sub in where game balance wasn't, and and that's another problem I have. Right. Where where oh just buy buy the good game because this game isn't good right now. Right. You know. Um, but um, no, I, I couldn't really with any with any credibility recommend any of them other than perhaps our own. But I, I don't think ours has this problem. You know, I, I think when you play Heroes of Neverwinter, it's it's a really cool turn based strategy D&D game and you don't have to pay. You can get and all the a, way to the end of it without paying. And it's a, it's on Facebook and it's on Facebook. OK, good to know. Good. But um well, uh, Campus Life, by your criteria, Campus Life has created for me a very strong memory, and that is the <laughs> moment where I thought I was only going to send people like Jason McMaster here uh, these – I was just going to grief him by sending him a little nag, and it created a very strong memory of me realizing with horror that I did not get that option and that it would instead send the nag to all 200 people on my friends list. So, oh, that's, <laughs> so thank you, Campus Life. So, so thank you for validating games in general, Campus Life. <laughs> uh, all right, so McMaster, uh, who, by the way, has a higher level sorority? I believe it's me at this point. Yeah, you, it would have to be you. I think mine's only 20 or whatever. I think you're at like 26 or 27. How many chicks do you have in your sorority? Four. Oh, I just got a sixth. Interesting. Oh, my God. Have you been to London with Chad? No, of course I haven't been to London with Chad. I'm not a floozy <laughs> like you. Well, sometimes you got to go to London with Chad, McMaster. It's Please part stop. of campus life. Uh, McMaster, do you have uh, do you have any sort of a bathing a pink bathing suit wrap or what? What, what color pumps are you wearing, McMaster? I believe they're pink. Interesting. <laughs> All right. Please, uh, stop. Please stop. Are you partial, McMaster, to a certain color purse? Uh, you know, I think I only have one, and it's black. But, you oh. know, black is pretty much universal. Hmm, all right. Well, sometimes I like a little pink. I like, I like a little green. I bet you do. <laughs> all right, so yeah. uh, Campus Life, McMaster's Game of the Week. I'm going to – now, Games of the Week doesn't – it doesn't mean you have to doesn't like it. It doesn't mean good. 
Yeah, but you know what, McMaster? Nobody is going to remember or realize that, so I can now in perpetuity say, hey, Jason McMaster, remember that time you picked Campus Life as your game of the week? And everyone will assume it means you loved it. Yeah, you should just, uh, you know what, you could do this even worse, and I don't know why I'm going to give you this hint, but if you write it on the Internet, it it can pretty much just enter into search engines. Right, Jason McMaster's Game of the Week, Campus Life. Awesome. All right, right, well, my Game of the Week then, uh, and Ed, I'd asked you earlier to think about what does it take to make a good brawler, because you guys made Rise of the Argonauts, and and that was certainly a part of that game. I want to hear that from you guys in a second, but let me first tell you a bit about um, – I just thought it was called Devil May Cry, but it turns out it is technically called DMC Devil May Cry. Oh, wow. I, I don't know why they're doing that. It just seems redundant. It's You know, Capcom gives things weird names to – like they can't just stick a number after it. It's, a, it's DMC Devil May Cry is the official name of this. Um However, it's the first time that this developer has made a Devil May Cry game. You know, Devil May Cry has been around for a while. Uh, this time, the developer is Ninja Theory. Uh, oh wow! And they're they're known for Heavenly Sword, uh, which I think was a prominent part of the PS3. And they recently did a game called Enslaved: Odyssey <laughs> of the West. Um, now, the the thing that I'm realizing about Devil May Cry is that it has more gameplay than Enslaved did. Enslaved was a very story-heavy game. It had some platforming elements, some minor combat. But what mainly what made Enslaved as good as it was was the storytelling uh, and the acting and, and the character animation. Uh, you're, I don't think you're going to get storytelling quite that strong in Devil May Cry. But what you are going to get is a lot more gameplay. Uh, it, it seems like a pretty good brawler. I'll talk about some specifics in a second. Uh, and I actually don't mind the story. The, the Devil May Cries that I've played in the past, I've had no idea what's going on, and I couldn't have cared less. This one seems like a bit of a reboot. Uh, they start. Yeah. They, they seem to have some cute kind of zeitgeist stuff, where the lead villain is an investment banker, and uh, one of the the groups that you have to go up against is running a right-wing news network. Um, there's some stuff about uh, people, the, the populace being poisoned through a popular soft drink, which is obviously a message about consumerism. Uh, and it doesn't seem too earnest. Like, a lot of it seems kind of tongue-in-cheek um, and playful. Uh, the two characters, uh, they're, the two main characters are brothers, and they look very, I would characterize them as twilighty. They definitely look hmm. like... They don't look like they're from a Japanese game so much as they look like they're from the Twilight movies. Um, One of the liabilities, though, of the game, one of the problems with it is that it's the Unreal Engine, and boy, does it look like it. It's incredibly plasticky looking. Uh, And and I loved, uh, last year, there was a game called The Darkness 2, which used the Unreal Engine, and what they did to kind of mask the fact that it was this plasticky, unreal, traditional character models uh, is they used uh, some heavy cell shading and they gave everything this grotesque comic booky look that recalled the early uh, horror comics, EC horror comics. Uh, and that was great. It was, a, it was a great visual skew for the darkness too. Here, it just looks like plastic Unreal stuff. Um, so far, I really like some of the freaky dream worlds. I like the, the upgrade system. Uh, it, it very clearly shows the scoring as you're doing your combos. I believe that's a trademark of the Devil May Cry games. Uh, it has leaderboards. Uh, so mm-hmm. if McMaster, you ever pick it up, you, 
you'll have to see what you can do to beat my scores. Uh, and, and, and basically one of the things – I'm not very far into it, but one of the things I'm admiring right out of the gate is how quickly it introduces uh, varied combat. Uh, it's, it's not making me do the equivalent of a fight with a pistol for four levels. Uh, a few levels in, I feel like I've got a, a big, generous toolbox of different moves I can use. Um, but overwhelmingly, I kind of feel like it's no Bayonetta, and that is kind of killing it for me. Because these games, brawlers like this, um, they require that you play them enough to, to learn them and, and sort of inculcate in yourself a bit of a muscle memory. Uh, is for different moves and, and uh, getting through into different rhythms. And I kind of feel like if I'm going to play one of these games, I'd just as soon go back and, and play Bayonetta again. Um, so that, that's been a bit of an obstacle, is that, that whole it's not as good as Bayonetta uh, thing. Um, so uh, that's what I've been playing. I'm, I'm kind of enjoying it. Uh, you know, in a way, it's a typical brawler. Uh, what do you guys look for in brawlers? What's what's important to you? Ed, you guys made one. What do you feel is are, are some of the most important ingredients of a good brawler? Well, um, I, I I'll, I'll I'll put two things on the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, feel mm-hmm. like it needs to feel like when I hit the buttons, it does stuff. And I know that sounds simple, but it's actually the hardest thing to do. Um, and that it not be repetitive if you can avoid it, mm-hmm. which is the bane of all brawlers because they're, they're they have to be repetitive otherwise it would take a hundred million dollars to make one. <laughs> oh, so one of, yeah. one of the ways they they sort of try to get around this is you ha- in the scoring system it clearly reduces your multiplier if you're just doing the same move over and over again. It's worth fewer and fewer points. So that they use this scoring system to encourage a variety of moves. Uh, and, of course, different kinds of enemies that they'll introduce respond differently to different moves. Uh, but between that and the scoring system, you can definitely see they're trying to work around what you're talking about there. Yeah. Okay, so that was one thing you wanted to put on the table. What, what else, Ed? No, those were the two things, the, the feel and the lack of repetition. Oh, the lack of repetitiveness, right. Now, Ed, can you think of – obviously, that's something you guys tried to work with with Rise of the Argonauts. Can you think of a, another brawler that you think handled those two things very well? Well, you know, I, I obviously, the, the second and the third of the brawler I'm about to mention didn't have the same impact with me on the first. But the very first time I picked up God of War, yeah, man, was that play pleasing just from a – from a gratifying sense of destruction per button press, <laughs> it was, it was a, a, an, a, a I'm, I'm trying to avoid making a sexual comment. Um, it, <laughs> it, it, it was, it was great. You, know, uh, you talk about games. The standard. Yeah, you talk about games creating memories. I think everybody remembers the first time you see those like blades whipping out and and, and, yeah. and just mowing down enemies. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, another unsung game on this front that I really liked was Gungrave. I, like I don't even know what that is, Ed. What is that? So it's a, it's a, I guess brawler has to be expanded to be like it's it's a brawler shooter. Mm-hmm. You know, right. he, he's shooting guns, but it was just such a fun system for keeping your combo alive, and he was just blasting everything. You got to go back and play it. It was really good. What what um, platform and how old is it? Ooh, I want to say PlayStation, PlayStation 2. 2. Yeah. Yeah, PlayStation 2. Okay. So you liked it too? 
Yeah, no, I I, uh, I think I reviewed Gungrave Overdose a long time ago, but yeah, they're, they're uh, yeah they're they're really kind of like a you know, summer movie style kind of things. There's not like a ton to them, but they're they're a lot of fun to play. I mean, the the combo system is pretty cool, and it's pretty constant, just uh, shooting and uh, whatever. It was on, it was so. one of those games that like between enemies, you had to shoot the destructibles to keep your combo up. Yeah. So, yeah. so don't so like, be realistic at all, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like you'd be fighting in a graveyard or something, you have to shoot tombstones and stuff to keep your <laughs> combo going and things like that, you know? Uh, Master, what do you look for in brawlers, and, and can you think of uh, some games that you think have done that well? Uh, yeah, actually. I guess if you want to know what I look for in brawlers, I look for Batman. I mean, that's just <laughs> kind of how it goes for me, unfortunately. I. I've, I've played a, a good bit of Sleeping Dogs lately, and uh, I picked up Batman Arkham City, the extended edition on the Steam sale, uh, and uh, put that on. And I just haven't gone back to Sleeping Dogs. I mean, it's nothing personal to it, but, uh, you know, I mean, just the Batman fighting system is so excellent. And it, it hits on what Ed said, which is uh, the instant feedback for button push, or the instant actual, hey, my moves are doing something. And that's exactly what Batman does well. You know what? Where I sort of feel that that originated, and, and these games weren't even really made as brawlers; they just accidentally were that. Also, um, Assassin's Creed, when that first came out, you know, it was mainly an, a gorgeous open world game, but they had this really elaborately animated fighting system. And part of the, uh, I, I don't want to say problem because it worked, but one of the drawbacks, one of the distancing effects that, that makes people still play games like Bayonetta and Devil May Cry is that there comes a point where you feel like you're just pressing a button and then it's, it's triggering a cool animation. And that can be gratifying, but it doesn't have that same sense of, ooh, I did this, that you get with a really good brawler, and that I feel that Batman Arkham City brought into that system better than the Assassin's Creed games had done. Like, I feel like it's it's much more responsive when something happens. Like, I feel like it's less oh, yeah. unlocking an animation as my timing being required to make the cool things happen. Um, right, and it's, it's their gene... Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Uh, no, it's it's just their genius way of uh, addressing the way the animations fit together. You know, like they give you a window for when you need to hit the Y to block or, or to uh, counter. They give you like all these windows. And now you can also go with like if you can do a quicker strike or something like that, you can hit them before they hit you. But you always have this certain window to counter the moves in. And if you hit it, no matter how close they are, then you get it. But uh, it it takes just so much nuance and so much timing and uh, requires, uh, without, uh, on the more advanced modes, without, like, a lot of the prompting, it requires just, like, a lot of attention to detail. Right. I, I wonder how much that's an impediment for me going enjoying something like Devil May Cry, is you, you get a great open-world game that has a brawler in it. Uh, it. It, in a way, kind of makes it difficult to go through Devil May Cry, which is just Mission 1, Mission 2, Mission 3, Mission 4, all, all the way up to, to Mission 20. And, uh, and I guess that's probably my one of my big problems with Sleeping Dogs in the end, is that, you know, it just, it, it kind of goes for the same Batman thing, but it, the the brawling system doesn't feel quite as responsive. It doesn't feel quite as fully developed as they as the people at Rocksteady. Man, Batman Arkham City is a real jerk for what it does to other games. It really <laughs> is. I mean, like, if the biggest complaint was sexist comments from hardened criminals, then I don't know what else to say about the game. 
You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It's just so great. All right, so there we go. That's uh, my game of the week, a uh, Capcom brawler. Uh, oh, and by the way, if you, I think Devil, when you say DMC Devil May Cry, uh, I have to look this up, but you have to be very particular about which of the letters in DMC you capitalize. Uh, so oh, I think it's M, isn't it? That's just so random. Lowercase d, uppercase m, lowercase c. Yeah, that does look right. It's ridiculous, though. So, it sounds about right, because the devil may cry. Maybe the <laughs> end. <laughs> uh, all right, well, those listening, thank you so much. Uh, I haven't been doing this for a while, but uh, I just want to remind folks, if you like the podcast, uh, please uh, rate us on iTunes. We, we love it when you do that. Um, we also have a donate box. We appreciate any donations. And if you shop at Amazon, uh, use our little search box. We really appreciate that. Uh, and I personally love spying on, on what things people buy. I don't, I don't see who you are when you buy something, but I just love seeing the things that uh, people have purchased. Uh, so uh, support the Quarter to Three Games podcast there. Uh, Ed, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. It was great to catch up with you. It's been a yeah, while. Great. Hey, thanks, thanks for having me, and I have one confession to make. Yes. This is my first podcast ever. I don't think I believe oh. it for a second. What are you talking about? It, it is absolutely the first podcast I have ever done. Why, wow. noob? I mean, I, I know for hell, <laughs> you've been around for so long, and you obviously have your fingers in so many different pies. I don't, I can't, and you, you're one of those guys, too. You obviously are conditioned. This isn't a bad thing, by the way. Conditioned to, to talk in sound bites. I can't believe you haven't, like, been doing podcast circuits. I, I'm, I'm, I, maybe I should. Well, I'm happy to help break you in. So Absolutely. <laughs> come back anytime. Uh, no, this was great. I had such a good time. Thank you, guys. And most of all, uh, best of luck with, with Paper Moon. It, uh, Paper Moon with Paper Galaxy. It, it's it's <laughs> adorable. I genuinely like it. Uh, if if you want to see a cute sort of, it's, and I hate, I even hate calling it an endless runner because it's more than that. But uh, pick pick up. Paper Galaxy. Uh, I, I, cat I, likes it too. I, my cat endorses it as well. I don't know if you can hear him. He wanted to come in and find me to uh, give a plug to Paper Galaxy before we go. Yeah, no. he's your producer. Yeah, <laughs> right, the producer. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, thanks for listening, and we will see everyone here. What are we going to bring, folks, next week, McMaster? Oh, the uh, I don't know. Are we the Harbingers of Doom? No, no, just games and uh, stuff like that. News. And furthermore, we'll see uh, what the McMaster Skylander count is up to. This week it's at 9. We'll see where it is next week. Uh, Join us for that. Uh, Again, Ed, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It is only a paper moon Hanging over the cardboard seat But wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me It is only a canvas sky Sailing over a muslin tree But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me With all your love It's a honky-tonk parade With all your love It's a melody play